0: not proud
1: And welcome to the Bobble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety nearly 10 years ago in my blog on Pickled and in the books that I write. I tell my stories there and I hold space for your stories here. And today I'm holding space for Dab. Hi, Dab. Welcome to the Bobble Hour.
2: Hi, Jean. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you for being here. Now, Deb, how long have
2: you been sober? Um, Since May 29th, 2019. So it's more than a year and a half last time I checked. That's
1: feeling pretty good. Hey, do you feel like you're just cruising along? No. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, (laughs) No, you're going to have a but well, you're going to have a blog for a long, long time for with um, people needing you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, honestly, I think um, my story and probably a lot of people's is it's primarily a mental health story with a lot of alcohol running through it. In my family, everything I'd always had modeled and kind of copied later was sort of a, a denial or lack of understanding of some behavioral and emotional issues and self-medicating was, it was what my parents did. And you don't know any different than what you've seen. So it was very normal to me that, that we had a kegerator in my dining room with my parents growing up. That didn't seem odd to me till I started to have friends coming over to visit. And this, this is a little bit odd, or they noticed the amount of empty cans that would be in the car to go to the Redemption Center, things like that, that I never would have picked up on and was still in denial about well into adulthood as far as alcohol being an issue. But to back up a little bit, to just tell you about about me and my story, I'm 42 now, working as a freelance writer, a little light this year for personal reasons, mostly. So, I live in the middle of Massachusetts, and besides taking care of my kids i um I really love exercise all forms. I don't like cooking at all, no matter how hard I try, but I still try to jump around a little bit. Initially, I don't think my relationship with alcohol was all that atypical for a teenager, probably even swung more toward caution, because I was a runner on the cross-country and track teams, and the culture of student athletics, both in high school and college, was very anti-substance. And I had a perfect excuse to, um, not that I was any kind of all-star athlete, but I just had an easy excuse to say no. And I think I probably had one beer before I graduated from high school, and even college wasn't there was the occasional party, but it wasn't a significant issue that interfered with my life I think until I started using alcohol to substitute for other other things. We see it in the marketing for alcohol toward women a lot where that it's, it's um it's become kind of conflated with self care in a way, and when I was in my early thirties and had been a a long distance and competitive runner for a long time definitely used it to manage stress had a very hard time getting by without it whenever i was injured then i found myself a single mom with a 3 and a 4 year old i did have help but i had days on end where you know obviously i couldn't leave them home alone but if they were in bed for the night it was okay or it seemed okay to have a glass of wine and um it took a good decade for that to snowball into an uncomfortable amount but even along the way I mean I I did hear comments I ignored them deflected them I'm not sure if it was before after my first partial hospitalization that that I'd started to really question whether I had a troubled relationship with alcohol denial can be so so thick it's so easy to to think that it would be obvious and it and it's it's just not. After my divorce, uh, I remarried. a wonderful person. We've, his name's Jason. We've been together for, well, we've been married for three years now. And we've, we've been through a lot. Our newlywed year was, was really tough. We spent a lot of energy and concern with my mom. Had a health crisis and a housing crisis. And we did our best. We had a lot on our plate very quickly. And I think the stress for me and and part of what makes me anxious and sometimes feel, you know, can set off a thought spiral is really feeling caught in the middle. Being empathic to everybody's feelings and knowing that nobody can get everything that they want. In that situation, it was really a matter of figuring out what was what was healthiest and safest and most reasonable uh, as a means of caring for my mom full time. But um, in my other ear, I had her kind of just she, she wanted to stay right with me, and that it I totally understand it. I I couldn't sustain it, and um, I. Just the mental push and pull and wanting so bad for nobody to hurt was just more than I could take. So my anxiety got to a level that I'd always been pretty high functioning, but at this point I was having to take time off of work. I've lost count of how many significant kind of episodes I've had, but when I got treatment at it's called a partial hospitalization program and so i went about a year and a half ago it's run by a hospital and they had um originally i was just on the mental health track and uh, they did offer a, a dual diagnosis program um during during my initial intake meeting if there's a long question uh, a long questionnaire you, you tell a lot of stories or not stories but you you talk about your history, any history of trauma, um, any substances that, that may or may not be a part of your life, and, uh, and you need to set goals. And I was low enough toward my bottom that I was more honest than I'd been with clinicians thus far. I, I told the truth. Are pretty close to the truth about how much I was consuming, or i even I think I said three to four glasses a night, which is probably accurate, maybe more on the weekends, but it was you don't realize how much volume that is until you stop, and I would imagine the empties that weren't there, but I had to pick a third goal is what I, I said, and my goals at that program were to um, To work on the anxiety and the depression, and it was an abstinence based program. I reluctantly agreed that I, um, my drinking was heavier than I was comfortable with, and that i'd you know take a look at abstinence at least for the duration of the program. it wasn 't that hard to agree to for the two weeks, but to get through the two weeks, I found that I needed other resources pretty quickly. I think I found the bubble hour pretty early on in that search I listened to other podcasts and read books and I think it it kind of came full circle where it it helped me doing that work helped me just understand how much how much nonsense I'd been telling myself for a long time and it alleviated my anxiety tremendously not just chemically not just because I finally understood that alcohol renders antidepressants much less effective than they would be on their own. It was not having to worry about getting to the liquor store before the weekend or planning my evening around um, whether I'd have to drive one of the kids anywhere. It it was just one less thing off my shoulders. And to be fair, I, I don't, I think unlike a lot of listeners, my struggle hasn't been so much with cravings or a lifestyle, or it's it's not exactly the same because I was self medicating in an, an illness, and I have other prescribed medications for that illness, and some of them are controlled substances. My body's not chemical free but it's, I'm not freewheeling it by myself. I'm, I have a lot of doctors and a psychiatrist and people who uh, monitor and help guide what I put into my body. And even then I'm ambivalent about some, some of those things, but at least alcohol is not one of them. I don't have to worry about alcohol mixing in a dangerous way with anything else, or um, particularly my behavior, as I've been told, could get particularly nasty if I happen to um, mix alcohol and anxiety medication to any degree. It would make whatever whatever situation that seemed impossible, it, it would keep it impossible. Like I said, it's been a year and a half since I took my last drink. Uh, I have maintained it day by day. I haven't been, I have not gone to AA. I have attended in the past uh, with friends, with my brother, I used to attend. Still kind of sticking with the self-help approach for now, except my bigger struggles, I do reach out for a lot of help. I'm, I'm part of another virtual support group now with many of the same clinicians that helped me out a year and a half ago. And um it was in person then and it's it's online now because of the pandemic. But uh, it was really not an expected moment to be able to say, okay, well this is what you taught me and um this is what I want to get back to and I I was able to say that what I need to do is get my baseline where you know my my regular kind of default state back down to a, um, to a more grounded level. So when things like 2020 happen there's a little bit more cushion and I kept using the tools. I, I used the journaling and I kept exercising and went to yoga every single day, sometimes CrossFit and yoga in the same day. But like I told my intake counselor last week, it it just sometimes it wasn't enough. I was still having a crisis and had to get more help. And it was really lousy to have to not be able to make that decision on my time frame. I was really trying to keep things pulled together and until at least after the holidays, my symptoms were too bad to, it was too close to call. So I went to the hospital the two days before Christmas and stayed there until a little bit after New Year's and then came home to find out I had contracted COVID. And then thankfully, all of my immediate family members I could have exposed, they are They tested negative and are totally fine. I'm feeling back to myself. But that was was one of the things I've been most white-knuckled about all year long. Like a lot of people who are listening, I'm sure. And I had a really sad outcome with early on in the pandemic, losing my mom in June. So, I've been so hypersensitive to all of it, to all of the news and people's opinions whether I agreed with them or not, just all of the the chaos and surrealness was very triggering to me and um it made it very difficult to put my fear in perspective, to put precautions in perspective um, when When you're already naturally hypervigilant, it's hard to know what to, so how hypervigilant do you up it? Do you down it? When people are telling you that that's actually how you have to be, it's not necessarily true for you. But the ironic thing is that actually getting COVID myself, it's not, (laughs) I'm not going to say it's cured it as a trigger. It still makes me very nervous. I think I'm going to have complicated feelings about everyone is going to have a lot of complicated feelings about this, this whole year for a long time. But that particular thing, like, okay, well, the worst things that I'd feared, they, they have happened and we're we're still going, we're doing the best we can. We're making the best decisions that we can. So My motivation is, it's always been my kids and not in a way that, you know, if they listen to this someday, I just, I want them to know that it's not in a way that should burden them at all. It's just, if you're going to have a reason to push through really impossible things, I have two awesome people in my life that, um, they're, they're worth it. They push me to do things that I wouldn't otherwise do. I joke with my daughter that I, um, I would not revisit 7th grade for the first third time if you count me, my son, and her. I certainly wouldn't do that for anybody else. <laughs> it was the worst year of my childhood for, by far. They're my motivation to want to be the healthiest version of myself I can be. And I think it's important that they grow up and I don't want to criticize my mom, especially when she's not here to defend herself, but she martyred herself to a degree that was really hard to live up to. When you're told that you're your parents' world, when at nine years old, you're your mom's rock. And she says that to you when your sister is calling you substitute mama, it's, it's too much. It's too much pressure. And it's, it's, it's too heavy for a kid. So, you know, I don't want to tell my kids they're my world. They're the reason I live, but they're a damn good reason to enjoy this world, to have things to look forward to. And that's a really big part of mental health is just knowing what is what's the next thing that is most likely going to make you smile. To find those little moments of joy. And to be able to come to, I think, people who have episodes of mental health, of really feeling helpless or hopeless, and just wanting to shut it off. And then when you come to your sense, when you come. Not to your senses again. We're not we're not insane. We're not crazy. I don't think those things exist. But when you come back into your own head and you can look out at a sunrise or just something as small as, you know, your dog and think, I, why would I have ever considered even missing this? Why would that have ever? I can't believe I could have almost missed this. And I think that's... It all links back to just being honest with yourself. And I think with, with alcohol, it, for me, it was that was not the primary struggle. It was low-hanging fruit in terms of getting my overall life together. It was sabotaging um, my treatment plan. Um, because my treatment plan was based on incomplete information. It was... Mixing not well with the drugs. It was distracting me from dealing with issues at hand. It certainly could have been risky. There, there are a million things that fortunately did not go wrong. And, and it was certainly brought to my attention politely, maybe too politely, more than once. It, it, it crept up over the years. It crept up very, very slowly kind of like the, the analogy of the, the frog that's being boiled in water. And in your head, it's still a glass of wine every like, Thursday or Friday night. And then in reality, it's, um, it's a full-blown habit that is not making anything better.
1: It's interesting as you say that. I'm thinking, you know, you said you were self-medicating with alcohol. And I mean, I think a lot of us do that. And then even if you are, if anyone is fortunate enough to then actually deal with the problem that they were self-medicating, but now you have two problems, <laughs> right? right? Yes, yeah. Because the uh, you don't need to self-medicate anymore. You have appropriate medication, but okay. But meanwhile, you develop dependency on alcohol or alcohol use disorder. So then you start taking medication to actually treat the underlying problem. But now there's this other problem that makes the medication less effective. It's a real catch-22. It's vicious. It's vicious. So it's interesting how that goes, isn't it?
2: I don't remember, not to throw any doctors under the bus, but I don't remember ever being warned specifically that alcohol... eh, It's common sense, but I I don't know. I think maybe we can hear it more, but I don't know. I don't know because... I did not. There was so much I didn't want to hear. Then, many of your guests and I have this in common. You know, we we second guess ourselves. We, you know, if we have to Google. Uh, do I have a drinking problem? I tend to think, well, if you have to ask, there, there's that's at least a red flag. I was so annoyed with that case worker who, um, he really challenged me about it, and she didn't. Make a huge deal about it. She's just like, well, okay, well, you know, we got we're putting this on the third line, and that's that. And I sat there crying, and she's like, okay, and but she was a little bit nonchalant, and I think maybe that helped me. Just like, no, you're gonna be a big girl, and you're going to try this. And as I've repeated mental health boot camp with some of these programs that I am fortunate to have access to. I do have to be reminded of the tough love aspect of self-care sometimes, too, that it's not supposed to be easy. If you like he asked if I was coasting in the beginning, and I, um, <laughs> I don't I hope to never get there because that's that that sounds like a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I think I'm cautiously 10 and 2, just trying to keep moving forward safely, as safely as possible, and as calm and balanced and grounded and trying to grow and own some of my mistakes, be open-minded to changing my mind about things. Changed my mind about quite a lot of things. Just experience is different from from what you want to think. I did not think I would... I didn't think I'd ever find myself so much as the whole alcoholism in the family was just so obvious that it's comical. That We used to, um, we used to go sailing with my dad and we'd, one of us would have to carry the cooler down the gangplank, which would be steeper or less steep depending on the tide. And it would be really heavy on the way down. And it didn't, Clicked to me until I was 40 years old that, okay, so that was that fit a six pack plus a couple more. So we were out in the sun all day with the only adult consuming eight beers at a minimum and then going back in a car. He was trying to teach us to be sailors, but now in retrospect, he was also trying to take naps at The same time. Um, but you're so oblivious as a kid. Now, now I see. Oh, that's why he thought it was real action. (laughs) We definitely did not. The umbrella diagnosis I have that that I'm pretty sure I have because there's no real test for any of these. But a psychiatrist. That I, that I saw about a year and a half ago at the same time that I stopped drinking, provided me with a questionnaire. The very first question, he said, oh, you know, I don't, I don't know if this will come up with anything for you, but why don't, why don't you just go, go through and, um, and answer these questions? The very first item or criteria was makes frantic attempts to avoid real or perceived abandonment. I had never seen that on a questionnaire, ever. I had never seen a more concise description of what I'd been living with for a long time. That is one of the one of seven or not, several traits for borderline personality borderline personality disorder, um, which some people call BPD. Another term that a lot of people like that's probably more accurate, he said I made to think of it as emotional hypersensitivity, and that rang very true, where a lot of what I would struggle with all my life, but it got, my symptoms got more severe as I got older and Was handling more complex stressors. BPD is known well. It's got probably some of the worst stigma out of the different mental health disorders. Even among clinicians, I've had clinicians in my life say I wouldn't even tell a patient that they that I thought they had BPD. There are clinicians who don't want to work with patients that have this disorder because it can, in very extreme circumstances, it can lead to really, um, troubling behavior, um, impulsive, um, there, there's a I don't know if it's a misconception or a stereotype that um, people with BPD are are very manipulative or attention-seeking and dramatic. And it really might look that way to someone who doesn't understand or someone who hasn't experienced it. What it feels like when it's at its worst is that Every f- feeling, instead of being like a twitch or an itch, or even sometimes you feel a little, a little pang in your chest when you you know, remember somebody who's gone or whatever. BPD at its, at its most unmanaged, every emotion just feels like a knife to the chest. It's just every little feeling and every big feeling, they just come at you all at once. They just they stab, and they stab, and they stab, and they don't stop. And it becomes so overwhelming that, at least for me, I wouldn't even know how to begin to articulate why I was upset because sometimes there's no apparent reason. And there'd be things in my head that I'd built up. And basically, it, it's a very, very complicated I think all mental health diagnoses are very complicated, but the, the key symptoms that I've struggled with were depression more as I got older, I think anxiety. And, um, when I was younger, particularly, uh, as a new mom, when I had a one colicky baby and then another colicky baby, right, right behind him. But as I've learned more about the diagnosis, I it makes it makes sense. It does help connect some dots. And there there are other elements of it that I thought didn't fit. There's there's one about having an unstable sense of identity. And I didn't that was one of those that I didn't think really fit until I'm confronted with trying to share my identity then I get kind of stuck and I think okay we had a project in um in the hospital an art project and well it started with a meditation to think about who we really were at heart you know what what that glow was from inside us from you know, from when we were just ourselves, just our natural selves, and I remember doing that meditation, kind of thinking of that glow, thinking of being kind of a somewhat carefree kid who wanted wanted to be a ballerina when I grew up, and you know I pictured somebody holding her head tall and being cheerful and playful and the person who came out was so different from that. I feel that my personality was almost kind of disciplined out of me with the way growing up with my dad was definitely an alcoholic. He lived in at, in the same home with me and my mom and sister until I was nine. And then we just saw him on weekends. But he was a very controlling, manipulative person. And that was, that was what he did. It was, if he said, don't cough, you didn't cough. If he said, the sky is purple, you you better just go ahead and say, okay, you're right. That was what I grew up with to the point that, you know, it would get me nervous to even hear other kids having fun, that I'd have this kind of, Uh, mother hen kind of intuition that, okay, you guys better settle down or somebody's going to get trouble. Someone's going to get hurt. It's not going to be good. So I think what I'm trying to figure out now is, you know, kind of to use it, what is my natural personality? Can I marry, you know, I find that carefree ballerina and this like 42 year old colicky baby who never grew up and this dysfunctional adult, but who keeps getting back up every time, every damn time life knocks me down, getting up again, I'm in there somewhere. And it it reminds me of the, um, in the treatment of borderline personality disorder, dialectical behavioral therapy is one of the most well-regarded kinds of therapy to treat that. And a key concept is the idea of wise mind, where we're kind of shown that our rational mind, our thinking mind is at one extreme and our emotionality is at the other extreme. And some of us tend to lean way on one side or the other. I would tend to be much more emotional when making decisions the idea of wise mind is to kind of find the sweet spot where both of those ideas overlap where your emotions and facts can live in the same space so i'm just trying to find a way that um the parts of me that weren't allowed to blossom can um can find the light if i just want to offer it to them even though it's been a long long time i just want to be able to um to give those parts a a chance to have some light and not have other people shape my personality i'd like to see what it can where it can go on its own with the right nurturing that's beautiful I'm writing that down. I like it so
1: much. (laughs) My understanding of BPD and, and that this is the first time I've heard emotional hypersensitivity used as a alternate um, title for it. But I think that's a probably a really good move to try to find a more descriptive, useful term. My understanding of it, has been explained that it's an inability to regulate emotions and that the, the therapy is basically to learn to regulate so that every emotion doesn't put you into sort of panic mode, survival mode. Does that hit the mark for you? Does that describe how it feels?
2: Yes. And it is, there's a lot of skills. It's called the stress tolerance that goes into, um, to learning to, to regulate. But, um, yeah, you can be mentally dysregulated and you can be behaviorally dysregulated. You know, I've had a lot of, you know, innocent conversations get, or neutral conversations turn into knock down, drag out arguments because, because my emotions go from zero to 60 so fast without really having a chance to process the information. It doesn't necessarily have to be about what's being said. You know, um, my, my husband would say, Oh, you know, could you wash the, the eggs out of that pan when you got a chance? And I'll go straight from, you know, okay. Yeah. my, I I bypass right by yes, my dirty eggs are kinda gross too. Oh my god, he thinks I I don't I'm a slob. I'm such a terrible wife. I I'm letting him down. I, I it will take such giant, enormous mental leaps, but they happen so lightning fast that I don't even know that I that I've just gone Gone there, and I'm already I have tears spilling from my eyes. I'm already shaking. And my poor husband's standing there, like, I just, you know, what happened? I just asked you to take care of the pan. And it's definitely not about the pan at all. It's about a million other things. And that might have just triggered something about usually it's something about feeling inadequate or that I'm not doing enough or, um, worrying about whether I am up to standard by my own standards or what I imagine somebody else's to be. And that's just one example of how like, just like a little graze with a feather can, can feel like a, um, like an
1: (laughs) ax. right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like emotional whiplash, right? Like you just like whoa, like even you don't really know what just happened. You, you said every emotion feels like a knife to the chest. Do, do good emotions sometimes have that kind of a response too? Or is it more that you're finding subtext in anything that has a whiff of criticism
2: that could result in abandonment? Um, it's definitely stronger. Negative is almost always harder to ignore. Um, yeah, anything that that reeks, uh, any whiff—if I can make any kind of leap toward rejection, abandonment, criticism, guilt, the, those all will bring things out really quickly. But good emotions, I, those make me cry too, <laughs> and just—and not always in a bad way—with a roller coaster of a the the other piece of of this is that um, it's different from bipolar and that typically someone with bipolar disorder, they'll have a manic episode that lasts for a certain amount of time, days or weeks, and then a depressive episode. With BPD, you can cycle through all of the emotions by breakfast and back again. And usually they are triggered by something, whether it's something that truly measures up to the r- response, usually not. But usually there's something that will tip the scales in either direction. So even happiness can be very anxiety provoking because you can almost see the crash around the corner.
1: So have, has your husband had to learn some new skills too? Is this something that you guys work on together because this seems like something that would be really hard to navigate alone. I mean it would seem that even if you had a code word of like, <laughs> you know, banana for when you're for when you're feeling something that has like no relevance in the moment just to give him a clue of like, oh, it's happening. Or does
2: he just know? Has he got has he learned all of the indicators? It's a work in progress. Mm. It's a work in progress. I, I'm i learning to, because sometimes he can just see it on my face. He'll just say, your face just fell. What happened? And I'll, and I'll pause and I'll say, well, okay. I We probably don't, I felt something, but it's not really something we need to get into now. And if I'm honestly telling the truth, uh, and we know, we've learned that it's not, that evening time isn't a productive time to get into a discussion. Sometimes, We'll forego a conversation, and I will kind of write down some thoughts and email him the next day. But to address your question, yes, it's been extremely hard on him. And I'm not sure how much the BP. I think the, knowing about the BPD diagnosis has overall been helpful, but it's also, it probably took me a good, I, I, I it took me a long time to, except that that was a likely diagnosis for me. Mm-hmm. And No, it's
1: a it's the diagnosis nobody wants. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, it's de- they definitely don't sell it very well. Um <laughs> although, you
1: know, it, it, I'm just remembering the what little I know about this and I've read a couple really good books. The Buddha and the Borderline was that that was really insightful book for me to understand. The diagnosis uh, of a friend who who actually was on the show a few years ago, Michelle. I'll I'll post a link to her episode too if anyone's interested in learning more about this. But you know, one of the one of the ways that they diagnose BPD is that people have a string of broken relationships because they you know often people that are untreated, undiagnosed, untreated their relationships don't last, family members, partners. And and so they don't have the opportunity to develop tools with the people in their lives because they end up breaking all of those relationships. So it strikes me as really fortunate for you that you have, you know, intact relationships to learn new tools within and to be successful in your treatment and not alone in it.
2: Absolutely. I am... I'm really, I'm a really lucky woman. I didn't, I knew a lot less about my diagnoses at the time of my first marriage. And I know that it it was a big part of the the difficulties in that relationship too. Um, my ex and I still have a co-parenting relationship. So, well, now the cat's out of the bag and we, we have to deal with this as a double-blended family. It wasn't so much romantic relationships where I saw my symptoms show up until this relationship. I think because I had um I had used some defense mechanisms to kind of hold hold my emotions at arm's length a little bit in some situations but where I would get myself in trouble would be with with friendships with other, with other girls and females. My, those would be I would have a different best friend every, every year or two. Mm. Did you have a series of
1: dramatic events that ended those friendships? Like, did you start, do you look back and see a pattern? Uh,
2: The pattern was usually that I was kind of being used. Mm -hmm. Most of the time I was being kind of taken advantage of in the name of friendship. Um, even as an adult, when, um, A few months in, I think, had just kind of, the dust had just sort of settled on my own separation. And, um, you know, we had the kids enrolled in school. We'd we'd established a parenting schedule. Things were, we'd started to adapt to a new normal. And a, a close friend of mine was in the throes of a lot of crises of her own. And she um, she asked if she could stay at my place, and of course I said yes. But I I only made it about a day. Just it was just too much, just too much emotion and tension. And I I drew a, a line. And she didn't she didn't forgive me. I this is just it's not. There's only so much space in this little apartment. You know we can't. it's just, it's not fair. It's not good for me. It's to be around. I don't want to say she wasn't a real friend, but I think a stronger friendship would have recovered from that, from one friend saying, you know what, this is, it's too much to have in my living space right now.
1: So that that strikes me as being more in the pattern of codependency and people-pleasing, having such a big heart, wanting to do so much for others, but also very typical for those of us that have those codependent tendencies of care, like being other-focused, caring more about others than about ourselves, identifying more with other people's feelings than our own feelings. I, I want to do all this for you, but then doing too much and then resenting it. And then, right? And then it bites you in the butt. And then you look like a jerk because not you personally, but I mean, then the pattern is then that person realizes, oh great, well now I'm the bad guy, and I kind of made myself a bad guy, but I'm not the bad guy. But wait a minute,
0: yeah.
1: (laughs) Ah, how did this happen? Yeah, (laughs) hundred percent a pattern. I don't know if you've read Melody Beattie's book Codependent No More, but that is a pattern that she describes of of doing too much for others and then. Not either not being appreciated or being taken advantage of and then having it kind of blow up in your face. Yep. And wondering, oh yeah, how how did we get here?
2: Yeah. But li- luckily our whole family is learning skills. Yeah.
1: How old are your kids now, Deb?
2: They're twelve and thirteen. So they're right in the throes of of adolescence and a pandemic and and so as a the-
1: as a freelance writer it uh, it all cu- starts to make sense how yeah. uh, this might have have impacted your work in the last year all of this speaking of covid i'm very sorry about your mom losing your mom so hard during this this pandemic where you know we can't see people the way we want to we can't have people around us to help us grieve um and in the mix, you know, your your diagnosis, your sobriety, your your family being home, just all of it. Boy, it's a lot all at once and anyone who's who's lost someone close to them during this pandemic is really carrying a heavy load and and e- even more so for you with the added burdens that you have right now. What has gotten you through that? What are some of the things that you drew on to get through? grieving without alcohol with your mental health diagnosis and challenges and covid pandemic restrictions on top of all of
2: that the first go-to last last spring i spent a lot a lot of time just in my backyard my my husband has happens to know a lot about plants and trees and flowers and has cultivated at really really pretty kind of oasis in our in our backyard where I can just step outside I had a chair that I would just point right toward the sun and sit there and I'd cry as long as I would needed to every morning I mean at least for the a month that she was sick and for a good month after she died and just pace around that yard and I would look at the flowers in a way that I hadn't before. And I would take pictures of them. And I wasn't working, but I would write things that popped into my head. I would write little poems for the first time in ages, just trying to make myself just physically at peace and uh, there we did go on one family vacation this summer and we went into um, a rural part of New York state uh, we were visiting Lake Champlain but it was definitely the most kind of country rural setting we'd ever stayed in and just being around the the mountains and the Space, the space and the smell and the air—I felt so much closer to my mom in that setting than I had. And even she'd she'd been pretty ill for years before she passed. She she had dementia. It was our relationship had already—I'd already grieved a lot of our actual day to day relationship. In that setting in the country, it, I could feel her around me. I could almost like feel her in the wind, and it was really comforting. It, it really was we can't stay there forever, but just holding on to those those little things, feeling them, being open to them, and small little signs, and the other giant blessing that I think is easy to take for granted is that I have a safe and loving and supportive family and home to go back to. The hospital where I just spent a couple weeks, I, that's not, I was one of the few. There are people who, you know, there are they're not quite sure what kind of life that they, where they're going to go or what kind of life they have to return to for a variety of reasons. But when, you know, I, I know my ride, I know where I'm staying. I know that I'm safe. I know that I'm loved. I know that if I'm in danger and no matter what a fit, I try to pitch that I'm going to be taken care of. I, that these people have my back. Um, even if they, even if I behave in a way that looks like the opposite of appreciation, sometimes.
1: Well, when you know where that comes from, yeah, that helps, doesn't it? when When you know where that behavior, yeah. that it's a symptom of something, and it's it's not your true heart, and it's it's not your desire to act out. It's a symptom of something else that's going on. And just knowing that is helpful, right? Even, even when it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you about sobriety and recovery. So this being, as you said, like not the primary reason why you quit drinking, do you consider yourself to be, do you call your, do you refer to yourself as sober? Do you refer to yourself as alcohol free? How do you look at it? Like, do you see yourself as being in recovery? Do you identify as sober? What, I don't want to say labels. But like, how does it make sense to you in that way?
2: Right. Uh, what I typically just say is, I don't drink, or I I stop drinking, and and leave it at that. And I definitely think I have the alcoholic gene. For sure, I think I'm genetically predisposed, and that it would not be wise at any point to have a glass of wine and call it a day. Maybe it just. I can't see a scenario where that would be mm-hmm, worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just can't. I don't have a problem when other people drink socially around me unless they're intoxicated. I don't, I'm definitely start to get uncomfortable if people are slurring their words or whatever. But it's, it's very liberating. Just like I said about just not having to worry about buying alcohol. Is, when people are saying, you know, what are you drinking? What are you, it's, just, it's just, I don't okay, that's, that's cool. You know, nobody asks like why, or sometimes they do. And you know, the easy answer is that it doesn't mix with my meds. And I have a gene that is going to pretty much guarantees that it's not going to go well. Even I've also learned from seeing my parents' physical health. it you know, they never had, well, I'm not them, so I can't say they didn't have, co- they've had tough times and consequences of their own. But the physical toll that, it, that it's taken, that you get one human body, you get one liver, you get one intestine. When illness came, when times were tough, they had so much less resilience just physically because it, it beats your body down. You know, they both faced. A lot of chronic health issues that maybe not would have been avoided with alcohol certainly didn't make any of them better and could have contributed to some of them
1: yeah and for I think for a lot of us when we're drinking, you know the idea of like liver damage or pancreas troubles seems kind of vague and not an immediate problem, but if you've ever seen somebody living with those things, I mean it's painful it's debilitating and there's just there's so much damage that alcohol chronic alcoholism does to a body as it ages it's shocking
2: it's terrifying it's terrifying and I I my dad had um had an open heart surgery it was a few years ago now it was his second but he went through withdrawal after surgery and had withdrawals and DTs that dangerous enough that he's lucky he pulled through that alone let alone the surgery you know and he started drinking again maybe two or three weeks later it was a window of opportunity but it's it's gone it's not my decision to make it did feel good to to share that I didn't the last time that um that we saw each other, he did, you know, made a point to say, oh, I got Pinot Grigio for you. And he said, well, well, that was nice of you, but no thanks. You know, and then he might have asked a second or a third time. And I said, you know, no, I stopped. And he, and, you know, he asked me kind of, do you think you had a problem? And I said, well, it, it was a whole, it's a whole lot easier to abstain than to moderate. Amen to
1: that. It's
2: just, <laughs> if you can, if it's something you don't need in your life, so much easier. And we don't need
1: a badge that says we're official alcoholics in order to make that choice, right? Like we right. right. There doesn't have to be some crisis or diagnosis even for that. Just, just to know, like, you're mm-hmm. so much better off without this. So true. Are you looking forward to when your support groups get back to being in person or are you going to miss online meetings?
2: Um, no, I think I'm happily surprised that online is as effective as as it is, but I am looking forward to getting back in person. There, there isn't any substitute for that really. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I'm, I'm finding the same. I'm
1: grateful for the online meetings. I mean, they're amazing. And I hope they continue. I'm sure they will to some degree because they turn out to be really, really useful. But I miss my in-person meetings too. There's a lot to be said for that.
2: Yeah, I think that the one positive about online meetings and support groups, is maybe it lowers the barrier to entry just a little bit. If someone's a little bit reluctant, it's a little less daunting to hop online. Yeah. Join a meeting.
1: That, yeah, that's true. And it can help you build courage for going to a real one, I think, when you are not a real one, an in person meeting. Their online ones are real too.
2: <laughs> right. I even started at the, um, there is a, an athlete at my gym who happens to be a minister. And I hadn't gone to church growing up or very much as an adult, but during the pandemic, she started, her church started posting all of their services online. And that was part of what I would, I would listen to that. Certainly in the spring when I was grieving my hardest, it brought tremendous comfort. And I don't know that I would have just walked through the door. I knew I'd been tempted to walk through the doors a lot of times just to see what it was about, but I I had too much inertia or just enough to, to keep me at home. But now that I've kind of been introduced, I, I feel like I could walk in the doors once they open again.
1: Yeah. So nice. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your story. I really appreciate it. And, and it's good to, to learn along with you. I really appreciate your, your candor and talking about, you know, some pretty Personal things that are we don't all get to learn about and get to hear about. So it's it's really wonderful of you, really generous of you to share your story. And congratulations on your wellness and and on all the work that you've done. I know it isn't easy. Thank you. Sometimes we we get so used to always talking to each other about this stuff that we sort of forget to stop and just like high five.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, So yeah. too.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much. And listeners, if you would like to uh, give some feedback to Deb, thank her for her story or relate to her in some way, send an email to thebubblehour at gmail.com and I will make sure that Deb gets it. That's all for this week, everyone. Until next time, take good care.
0: I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free From the power Weakness had on me In a dark corner Is where shame likes to hide We oh, you think you're strong Just cause you'll keep it on Just stays and wait there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see. Oh, I did that Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free Shout it out on Main Street to you. You don't need to whisper to confession; them ears. The person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror, and the one who matters most can always hear when you say, "I'm old, Not proud, but that was me, and when I face it. I just want to be free from the power, oh you must have on me When you said I'm old, I did that, I'm proud that that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses, I just want to be free